All right, and welcome to tonight's podcast. We're going to be a little freeform tonight on this. Um, doing it live, folks. Yes, we are doing it live because, um, as I stated earlier, um, that this is not necessarily a code class that we're doing this evening, but we're just basically freely and openly talking about the code and um, the perils of dealing with the code and even like dealing with some of the people that you have to deal with um, when referencing the code. And um, so, you know, it's like um, a lot of times we deal with old timers or we deal with people who think they know the code. Um, and when you've actually read it and when you've actually uh, learned it and you've actually taken tests and even taken a code class, you know, you'll hear some of these people talk and you're like, they really have no idea you know, what's going on between the covers of this book. I mean, because like I've seen people say that um, it's a code regulation to turn your receptacle a certain direction, let's say ground pin up or something like that. Um, now, that, that might be required as a specification. Um, or it could be um, something that maybe a, um, a local inspector may require, but that is not in the National Electric Code. And you'll see a lot of people talk about things like that and you just kind of have to just smile and nod and move on um, because there's no point in arguing with someone who really doesn't know when they think they know. Um, and so, you know, in terms of having a code book, I do strongly <laughs> recommend um, that if you do not have a code book, please invest in one. Um, I know that it may be difficult to get 100 bucks, 200 bucks together. And even though people would disagree with me on this, I would say get an older code book, get an older edition, uh, get an edition that basically uh, um, if you want to get a 2008, 2011, uh, 2014, if you want to, uh, because what you want to do is you want to learn and get familiar with the rhythm and the um, concept of the code book so that you're familiar with how it's structured and um, basically how it's laid out so you can find things that that uh, um, that you're looking for um, and so that you can kind of um, be more comfortable with the way that it's worded with the um, you know shall not and must not and all of the different uh, run-on sentences that they have uh, that kind of puts you to, into a coma if you try to read too much at one time so i'm i have a little bit of a different take uh -huh. if you're just starting out in the trade uh, i think you should prioritize your tools first then the code book later okay. i don't think it's something you have to have day one mm-hmm Right. Okay. I mean, well, you do need to get it at some time, at, at some point. I, I would agree. You know, if, if it's your first day on the job, you may not even be sure if you're going to stay in this field forever. Yeah, I, I didn't get mine till two months ago. I've been okay. doing this two years now. So, mm -hmm. and I still have no, I don't have a real use for it out in the field with what mm -hmm. I do, which is residential work. Right. I see. So have you, so you haven't had a chance to use it or reference it at all ever since you've purchased it? No, because I'm I'm one of those guys. I can wire house completely up to code. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't reference the articles. Right, that make it up to code. I understand. Yeah, and, and I I would say that um I don't have to reference my book often, but I did have a couple of situations both last week and the week before uh, where I actually had to break out the code book or at least reference something in the book. Uh, pretty much to solve a situation. Um, le in fact, this week I had a situation. I was working in a commercial office building where there's several HVAC units inside the drop ceiling. And um, 
we got to a point, it's like we're still doing most of the rough-in work right now. And as you get to the end of the rough-in on a project, you may not have all the materials you need. It's like if you know you've been using like number eight, number 10, up to this point, you're starting to run out of, let's say, that number eight. Um, it's like you don't necessarily, let's say your supervisor or your foreman may not want to order another thousand foot roll of eight, five, simply because you have another 15, 20 feet to run. And so then you think, okay, well, you know, could I do this with number 10? And so, um, even though we do want to do things according to plans and specs, you know, I looked at the nameplate on all the units, um, and I looked at the situation as far as where I wanted to run the number 10 wire because I didn't have any more number eight wire. And um, when I looked at it and I saw, okay, well, this unit can handle it. I don't necessarily need to bump up the, the, the gauge on it. And um, when um, I took that to my supervisor, I didn't just like go rogue and, you know, do it because the code said I could do it. But I went back to my supervisor and said, hey, I want to do this. This is the reason why um, this is what's uh, and, and this is where I'm, I'm supporting it from. And sure enough, the boss says, OK, do it. You've convinced me. And um, so I think that was definitely um, a situation where it paid to actually know how to use the code book and find the answers that I was looking for. Right. So on that on that note, uh -huh. um, when when you have an inspector come, and I have an example of this, uh -huh. you have an inspector come up to your job site, and in my example, he told us to take the bonding off the gas line because uh -huh. we had a cast cast iron uh, bonding, and he said, "I'm not I'm not passing you until that's gone." Really? Okay. Yes. And we we didn't we did we couldn't fight him on that because obviously the. AHJ, the authority having jurisdiction, the inspector is what the actual law is. Yes, indeed. So Absolutely. I don't know, like how you would go about like trying to <clears throat> trying to fight that because you're obviously that that violates an, an, a specific article of code. Mm -hmm. Well, see, the and, thing is, you're not necessarily looking to fight it, um, but you want to petition for it. Uh, just like, so like, like my second example, like what happened, um, I would say happened a week before last, or I think it might have been the week before that. It was a situation where we were putting a, um, a 30 amp disconnect inside the drop ceiling. And um, we wanted to make sure that we had three feet of clearance. And it was like some odd situation where we did have a three feet of clearance, but when you opened the door, um, like it hit an obstruction, hit a gas pipe, or it hit something that was in the way. And so the way that we um, um, overcame that, you know, we kind of looked at, okay, so the, the rule says um, that, um, you know, you must have three feet of, of working clearance. And it was, it was just kind of a gray area situation where it could have gone either way. And so when my coworker came to me and said, hey, you know, can we do this? Uh, I said, I think we can. I'm pretty sure we can. And based upon what I'm reading, there's nothing that says that we can't. And so if the inspector has a problem with it, please come get me and I'll explain to the inspector why it was um, that I chose to do it that way. And, you know, when you run into situations like that, at least from my own experience, that sometimes the inspector will say, hey, you've convinced me that makes sense. Or other or there's other times when the inspector said, no, 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 fix it, do it this way. And um, so, like I said, I was, I, I, you know, I wasn't saying in terms of like, you know, trying to fight it, but I just want to be able to petition to the inspector. I said, you know, hey, I tried it this way. I couldn't figure out that way. And um, um, this just seemed like the most um, logical way to do it. 
and uh, sometimes they'll let it slide. Sometimes they'll, you know, nail you to the wall, say, well, if you got to turn this whole building around to make this right, please make it right, you know. So that's um, how it happened with that. Mind if uh, I add a little on that? Okay. Go ahead. Sure. We had a recent example of that. And just like you said, it's very important to stress the difference between getting confrontational with the inspector and trying to explain and justify to it. And occasionally you can point right to it code. So, one kitchen peninsula under code for peninsulas that typically takes precedence over your requirement to have an outlet within two feet of a sink. A peninsula only needs to have one based on a certain length. So, sometimes you need to be careful how you explain it so that you don't frustrate your inspectors because, as you said, they are the final say. Even if they like to do something that's a wild violation of code, as long as they tell you to do it, you don't have much of a say. Absolutely. Oh, as a uh, as a service guy, as a let's say you're just you're just the worker, right? Mm-hmm. The inspector tells you to do something that is completely against code. Yep. What is the what is the proper way to escalate that? Because that that's something that you have to communicate to your boss eventually. Like, how do you how do you what's the recommendations for all the people out there who may not be able to know the how to handle the situation uh so you know the inspector the hj still has the final say and um if he's asking you to do something that either violates the code or something that you just don't want to do because it conflicts with like the plans and the specs or even the owner's wishes um I mean, first, you got to take that to your supervisor because you're saying, okay, well, we have, you know, we kind of have an impasse here. And um, I don't necessarily want to get failed simply because I'm doing the right thing when the inspector's telling me to do the wrong thing. And most AHJs have some sort of appeal process. And of course, you know, you have to pick your battles, um, but they all have an, uh, some sort of appeal process where if you don't like the inspector's decision or you want to petition uh, um, to say we need to do it this way, you know, because such and such, so and so, there's always room, there's always uh, um, some uh, way to escalate it. And, of course, you have to pick your battles wisely. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily try to escalate every situation where you just disagreed with the inspector. Correct, Uh, yeah. And um, because a lot of times it it goes a lot higher than just, let's say, your foreman or your your supervisor, manager, and the inspector. Um, Because uh, uh, above the inspector, the inspector has a boss, whether it's like the board of trades or um, the electrical board or whatever it may be. Um, but there's like a building department that kind of oversees all of the individual inspectors for every area. Um, so, you know, so there's, there, there's always ways to be able to, um, you know, to, to basically deal with that. And even sometimes, you, and, and, and if the inspector says no, go, you may even have to go back to your architect and say, hey, the inspector says this is not going to fly. Mr. Architect, we need you to change the plans or we need you to go talk to the inspector. And um, it's, it's like the, you know, the owner of the building um, has a lot of weight because they're paying, you know, the tens of thousands of dollars for this electrical permit. And it's like, well, let's say if you, even if you're a developer, um, I believe that you do have some leverage in that situation on the higher, higher um, 
on the much higher levels of, of, of the hierarchy on all this because it's like, um, I mean, of course, they say you can't fight City Hall. That's correct. But, you know, if you have somebody that's paying you, like, say, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a project for permits, um, you kind of don't want to put yourself in a situation where they said, you know what, I'm not going to build in this particular area anymore. I'm going to build somewhere else. Uh, so there's always a little bit of ebb and flow and a little bit of leverage that everybody has in a situation, even though the ASJ does have like the final say. I, I can attest to that. I worked in a production setting where we were building probably we were we were closing on t- 10, 12 houses a week. Mm-hmm. And they had been doing this for 20 years before I got there. Uh-huh. And they had 20 more years of development planned out. Wow. Okay. I see. So yeah. This is a big, big housing development. And we got a lot of passing with exceptions mm-hmm. from our, we had like one or two inspectors dedicated to that project. All they did was drive around that project and inspect houses. Mm-hmm. So we got on a very personal name, first name basis with this guy. Yes. And he would, and he would come in and he'd be like, Hey, I need y'all to fix this and this. I'm going to pass it with exceptions. Mm-hmm. And if, if I come back and it's not fixed, I'm going to shut the, the I'm going to red tag it and we got to stop and fix yes. this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the what you're saying about, you know, the big projects getting a little bit of a special leeway. It is very much very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the flip side, uh-huh. those inspectors ask for some really weird stuff, in my opinion. In in yeah. one in one instance, uh, in order to get our temp power to the house, if we had um, under cabinet lights stubbed out of the stubbed out of underneath the cabinets, we had to actually put those in boxes. Yes, absolutely. Even though they weren't cut, like we would run them, we would just loop them. Mm-hmm. He didn't just he he want he didn't want just the end that was cut to be in a box. He wanted every single loop in a box. Yes, absolutely. That that that's an industry standard. If it's not, it's, it's becoming industry standard for safety's sake. Um, of, of course, I mean, is a loop wire going to electrocute you? A- a- absolutely not. But um, it's like you know, anything that's looped has the potential to be cut open. So, um, but it's like um, because if you're, if you're trying to get past for temporary power, what they're looking for most times is that can anybody come into this building and operate safely? Can they work safely? Is there going to be any hazards or have we minimized the hazards? And even like if you're even working in a commercial building, a lot of times the um, inspector will want you to plug up all the holes in the floor. They might want you to um, basically put orange spray paint on anything that's sticking up out of the floor. And I just think, you know, just boxing everything off, that's just another one of those safety things. I'd never seen that. I haven't, I didn't, hadn't done too many roughs uh, before that. So mm-hmm. I didn't, I'd never seen that when we were doing our rough-ins with my old company. So right was, now, there's a lot of like a little, lot of little stuff that we had to do to make the inspector happy. Yeah, absolutely. And he could have very well been coming from a commercial setting um, mm-hmm. because I mean, because like in all the years that I've actually seen residential houses being built. Um, yeah, I've, I've never seen anything boxed off because like, OK, so nowadays, like the dishwasher and the garbage disposal, they all have to have, you know, uh, um, an actual plug, an actual receptacle that you plug into where I remember there was a time when you wired it directly in. And so when they roughed it. You just basically had the Romex, you know, hanging out of the wall. Yep. And now they're wanting all that underneath the sink so you can actually access the 
disconnect. You can actually disconnect the the plug for the dishwasher. Mm-hmm. Exactly. At least where I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I admit I, I've changed quite a few dishwashers hot, you know, where I yes. just, you know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, so so thankfully nowadays, you know, it's, it's, it's all plug and cord. Yeah. Or, so yeah. on the dishwasher topic, who do you call to install a dishwasher? Um, normally, it's an appliance. There, there, there is a contractor that uh, um, uh, will either use a fixture setter or an, or um, an appliance installer. Yeah, you don't call electricians to install dishwashers do you not normally i mean um i had a customer call uh-huh. us and yep. they're like hey can you install a dishwasher we're thinking oh yeah it's just gonna be put a whip on this thing and mm-hmm. slap it in screw it up no big deal right right nope we had to we had to go get the plumbing parts and we had to go get all this stuff and then they got pissed off when the bill was like four hundred dollars so it took us two hours to get parts and then an yes. hour to install it right <laughs> it's like yeah. i'm sorry man yeah well yeah because i mean I, I can tell you there's a lot of weird things that i've seen people call electricians for simply because they didn't know who else to call and right. i mean i mean I, I i had to run a water line for ice maker one time um because the client they bought a new fridge, new refrigerator and uh, because of an electrical item they figured they would call me to help them um figure out why it's not making ice and i mean it's a funny situation where um the lady called me up and she said my ice maker is not making ice can you come take a look at it for me and i said well do you have your water line turned on is it connected is it hooked up and she said well the people at the store never told me anything about needing a water line and so I didn't want to be condescending or insulting to her, but I wanted to say so badly, well, miss, where do you think ice comes from? <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, I, I went over to check it out and it, it, it was an easy run, you know, drilled a couple holes through the cabinet and hooked up the water line. And, you know, that was my non-electrical task for being an electrician for that day. Um, but yeah, people call electricians for some of the strangest things. People call electricians to hook up sound systems. They call electricians, um, let's say to, um, I don't know, maybe to, um, hook up some, some, uh, um, HVAC devices because they figure anything that's got a light on it must be electrical. Very, very hesitant to open up HVAC units as mm-hmm. I have very little experience with them. Yes, uh, they they are very very scary on the inside. I I, I would agree with you on that. I, I've been hooking those up for about three weeks now, and um, every one that I've hooked up has been a little bit different from the other one. And even though like the HVAC guys have you know kind of walked me through it, they told me you know this is what you can touch, this is what you don't touch, this is what you stay away from. Um, and I've become more comfortable in it. But like you know somebody without that kind of guidance, yeah, you you don't know what can happen. Yep. The last thing I want to do is hook up line voltage to a low voltage system and blow everything up down the line. You know, it's funny you said that because that's what happened to me. They told me, hey, they, the HVAC guys just installed this new unit, hook it up. I pulled it apart. It's not a unit, but it's like a, a Siemens PLC inside that has lugs on it that says 24 volts. And the drawings called for 277. Now, I could see if I didn't know any better, yeah, I would have put my 277 on 24 volt lugs through the breaker and, and it would have been fireworks. Most definitely. Been a fun story. <laughs> yes, it would have been. <laughs> I was uh, working for a journeyman, and he, he wired up uh, an entire uh, set of wall packs mm-hmm. at 240 that were rated for 120. Uh-huh. And when he turned that brick on, it was just pop, 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 right down the wall. 
Wow. And he called his boss and he's like, hey, um, I made a mistake that's going to cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, you know, that's a lot easier to do in a construction environment because you still have a lot of material left over and you have insurance, all that kind of stuff. So um, that's probably the best time to make that kind of mistake. Oh, yeah, it would be terrible. It'd be terrible if you did that in a finished building and it was like a, a six week wait time for for uh, back ordered parts. Oh, yeah. I was hanging up lights today and there are these really expensive glass fixtures. Mm hmm. And I was just sweating bullets. Like, if I drop these, they're going to be waiting for them for a month again. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah. That's always a fun stress. Mm hmm. Yep. So, you know, talking, going back to the code, um, you know, like I heard somebody, or at least I read someone in in the um, in our Discord channels, uh, basically saying, asking, is there like any type of like dumbed down version of learning the code, or any like idiot's guide, or a guide for newbies, or something like that? And um, you know, it's like there are a lot of guides out there. There's a lot of learning resources, um, but I would have to say that. Um, um, as much as I really do believe that you should utilize anything that can kind of help you move along um, and help you learn, I still think that um, you should never really try to you know, use the, the term, you know, newbie or dummy or, or idiot's guide or anything like that. Because if you just take the time to uh, read the code cover for cover, you know, cover to cover. I mean, of course, you're not going to do it all in one sitting, um, but there's a lot of things in there that you, if you take your time with it, it comes along pretty easily. Like, for instance, if you were learning to read, um, it's like, like with, with learning, anytime we have difficulty learning something, this was called an interference point. Uh, whether you may have, like I say, uh, you may speak a different language where, where English is not your first language. Um, or you may have, you know, maybe vision impairment or other, you know, uh, um, things that, that are kind of like a um, what I call interference point. Or like as, as an example, if uh, you were learning how to read, uh, but you didn't know certain letters of the alphabet, let's say you didn't know the letters R, C, K, W and H, you're going to have a hard time understanding anything that I'm teaching you about reading, because most of the words that I'm going to be explaining uh, have those letters in it. And so I believe it's the same way with the National Electric Code, where a lot of times you can be so confused and so turned around because you're not familiar with the with Articles 90 and Article uh, uh, 100. Um, hey, I do believe ahead. in like, what I've called exposure therapy. Yep. Uh huh. Where you just like you may not have any idea what any of these words mean, right? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But you just. You read it, you devout, you listen to it, and you just get the, you get them in your head, and then when you go out to work, you hear them from time to time, like, oh, I know what that word is, I know what this word is, and it starts to kind of click into place, mm -hmm. and then so, when you, go ahead. No, so, so you're saying like sort of like have an immersion type thing or osmosis. Yeah, where it's like you, you, you kind of just info dump a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you pick out the pieces that you use around like in your local job sites and stuff. Everyone, the words that are most commonly said from the code book out to the field. And then that can be your jumping off point into actually reading the code and understanding the verbiage of the code and whatever the must not have or the specific verbiages 
Mm-hmm. Right. I, yeah, and, and I, I think you can. De- that, that's definitely good. But in order to be able to wrap your head around the verbiages, um, I do think that you still have to be able to spend some time uh, in both 90 and 100. Um, because like 90 pretty much explains everything that you're about to read. And um, so that way, when you do come across those shall nots and what ifs and all, all those different verbiages that are confusing, I think that the better that you really do understand 90, if you've read, uh, read article 90 over and over again, um, then the other things start to click in. And then like you're saying, or if you take that out to the field, then, you know, some of the terminology you're seeing, um, that starts to make sense also. Yeah, I th- I, I'm one of those guys, I have a hard time sitting down, reading a book, and then, like, uh, technical manuals specifically, I can't read technical manuals. Mm-hmm. I just, I die. I just fall asleep, it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if I, open the, if I open the book, I'm not actively looking for something. If I just open it, oh yeah, I'm going to read Article 90, Article 100, or 210, I'm just going to sit there and I'm not going to absorb any information that it says versus if I go out into the field and I have to crack open the book and look for this specific instance that I've run into, it's a lot easier for me to understand that because I can apply what I'm taking from the book out into something I can see and touch. Mm-hmm. And that's how I learn personally. Yes, I, I see. Yeah. And, and of course we all learn different ways and, and, you know, I, and, and you're absolutely right because you could, you know, do what you're talking about. And then eventually I do have to come back to 90. To see, you know, to kind of, you know, make more sense out of it, out of it, because like, um, you know, when I look at 90, OK, so 90 has a lot of areas that, that can trip you up. Like so I'm looking at it right now and um, I'm looking at it. Um, let's see, like 90.1 letter B. Or it says the code does not cover the following. And right here it says installation and ships, watercraft other than floating buildings. So then you think to yourself. Does that include folding bu- floating buildings or not? And so that word other can simply trip you up because of the way the whole thing is worded. And it's, right. uh, and it's almost like you have to read this thing four or five times over until it makes sense. Um, because it's like a lot of times when we're listening to something, somebody say something, or even when we're reading something, I think sometimes we have a tendency to understand what we think it says versus understanding what it actually says. Yeah, because the intent behind the code is just as important as what the actual verbiage is saying, and in my mm-hmm. opinion. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, because like if we say watercraft other than floating buildings, so if we really broke that down and said other than floating buildings, so what you're really saying here is floating buildings are actually covered by the code. Because of that word other. Right. And then uh, sometimes it can get a little confusing because it's just one big run on the sentence here. So it says installation in ships, watercraft other than floating buildings, railway, rolling stock, aircraft, or automotive vehicles other than mobile homes and recreational vehicles. Okay, so I read all that. I don't know. I have no clue what I just read. <laughs> you know, 
Yep. <laughs> because I'm looking, because it, it, it's like the way I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, okay, ships, watercraft, floating buildings, railway, rolling stock, aircraft, vehicles, mobile homes, recreational vehicles. So it's not really telling me, unless I really dig deep, unless I really dissect this, I really have no idea if, you know, which is included and which isn't included. Because it can even trip you by saying automotive vehicles other than mobile homes and recreational vehicles. So which one is it? Automotive vehicles or mobile homes? And so, right. And, and, and it's almost like a riddle where it's like if somebody, you know, uh, uh, tells you a riddle and, and you're trying to think of the answer, you almost have to run it through your head four or five times. Like the classic one about John's mother has three children. One's named Penny. One's named Nickel. What's the other one's name? Quarter. Right, exactly. But well, that's what a lot of people would say, but that's that's not the right answer. But you know, you keep thinking about it over and over again. John's mother has three children: one named Nickel, one named Penny. Her child's name is John. <laughs> you see what I mean? Gotta you love know that shit. Yeah, yeah. But but see, if 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 you'd have kept thinking that over and over and over again, you eventually would have realized John is the third child. Don't know how, but yeah, sure. I'll, I'll smile and nod for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, so it may not come immediately. It may be years before it makes sense. Okay. And I, I, you know. Yeah. But, but, but one way you get that is to just constantly keep reading and let that, you know, meditate in your, in your brain. Let it just keep rolling around. Let it keep just uh, flowing through over and over again. And, um, I, 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 you know, I mean, me personally, I think um, even though Article 90 would be very, very difficult the first go around and maybe the first five, 10 times you read it. Um, eventually things are going to start falling into place. Oh, well, let me ask you this then. Uh huh. What is, what is better? Is it better to read the code book on your own and just try to try to get through it on your own? Or is it better to have someone teach you and someone to kind of walk you through how, how it reads, how it's formatted, how it's laid out. Is, which, no, which one's more beneficial, do you think? It, it's more beneficial if somebody can walk you through it. Um, because it's like having a different set of eyes and ears and a different tone of voice other than the one inside your head will help you hear things much better. It's, it's, it's almost like your parents have been telling you the same thing for months and you never heard a word they said and then an uncle or relative or some other person says the exact same thing and then, oh, you get it, you know. Even though they said the exact same thing. Um... But even still, I, I would even say that uh, sometimes if you don't even have the benefit of a teacher, um, I think that you can figure that on your own or amongst your peers with a study group. Because even if like two or three people are saying the same thing, it's like me saying it, I hear it one way, but I hear you say it, I hear it a different way. And we're, we're, right. we're looking at the exact same thing. So I do think that if you can uh, um, get like a, say, a think tank together or a group of people who are a group of people who are in your circle of influence and, and they don't necessarily have to be electricians. You know, it's like, can we sit down and read this? You know, I'm, I'll photocopy you a page of this book and um, I'll read it to you. You read it to me. Tell me what you understand. I'll tell you what I understand. So then here's here. This is a, a little, a little of a controversial opinion here. Okay. Yes. Uh huh. So, Honestly, in, in the two years that I've been doing this, mm -hmm. the only time that I have felt pressured to read code was when I realized that my residential wireman's test is going to be just code referencing, and that's all it is. Mm -hmm. So, 
do you think that just cramming for the code for your test and getting the code knowledge for the t- to pass a test is that what you would consider like an acceptable amount of code knowledge or do you think it's every every electrician's responsibility to understand the majority of the code book well it depends on what type of professional you want to call yourself um just like if we go to the doctor we expect our doctor to tell us the right thing um and the same thing with you know being an electrician i mean it's like if you really just if you're just in it to pass the test so you can keep on working that's going to keep you working but then it's going to make you a particular type of, uh, of electrician versus the guy who masters his craft perfects his craft um because you never know i mean sometimes you know and, and there are situations where you do have to cram for an exam so you can keep working and i think that's perfectly fine as long as you eventually go back and study what you didn't learn um because sometimes we get into crunches you know life happens and you know we have our day-to-day activities and um we don't we you know we don't have the a lot of times we don't have the luxury of just stopping our entire life to uh, study the code book inside and out. I mean, some of us do, some of us make the time, and for uh, some of us, it's just impossible. But I would not do something like that and then say, okay, I passed my test, now I can set this aside and not look at it again. So that, that's that's something that's uh, um, that you don't want to do because it's going to come back haunt and, and haunt you eventually. Okay, so you're saying that it's it's acceptable, but you're going to be put in a specific box. Yes, exactly. exactly. All right, so let's talk about the uh, the other side of that box. Yeah, the people who just they they see the code book and they think that that is just God incarnate right there. They, they, like, I'm sorry, repeat, say that again. So the people who think that the code book is just the Bible, yeah, and that it does no wrong, it does it is the end all be all, and nothing can go beyond or below what the code book states. Mm-hmm who are so inflexible on what code is or does, they just read it word for word. Mm-hmm. Is that also something that, I guess it, um, let me, so I've in other a couple words, of those guys on this. Yeah, so, right, so what you're, what you're talking about is like someone who's got their nose so deep into the code book um, that they're not very useful in the field. Right, yep. Yeah, and, and um, I still have a lot of respect for people who know the code inside and out and, and, and those who adhere to it as closely as possible. Um, because that way, if you ever have to, let's say, call an audible or you have to um, deviate from it, at least you know where you left off. Um, if you're making a detour from it and... Um, in the real world, you know, you could think to yourself, you can think to yourself that everything is going to be done perfectly to the code. Um, but in the real world, you find that you're going to have to make some detours sometimes in order to meet deadlines, in order to stay on budget, in order to uh, keep everyone happy. Or sometimes you just run into physically impossible things that you just can't, you can't make it 100% to code without tearing down an entire structural wall and rebuilding it like it's just something yes things happen exactly and that's why a lot of times you'll have inspectors who will say that's a violation but i'll let it slide because it doesn't 
pose any safety or health risk. Right. And, I, and I've had many situations where the inspector came in and said, hey, I don't like this, but I can't really say that there's anything wrong with it enough to where I'm going to fail the inspection. Correct. Yep. Oh, God, I had a thought. I just lost it. Um, so I apologize. No, it was it was stage chat. I just saw someone mentioned arc faults and it made me twitch a little bit. Um, uh, OK, <laughs> give me a sec. I'll. I'll, uh, I'll it'll come back to me. Okay, um, but yeah, so it's it's it's, it's like um, um, anyone who thinks that um, that it's going to be a perfect situation with the code and you can do everything exactly as the code says, they obviously have not worked in the field, or they haven't worked in the field for any length of time. Um, they might work like in a controlled environment, uh, um, or they might be working in a prefab shop. Um, where everything is controlled and everything is structured in that way. Um, but in a real world situation, it never goes the way you've planned it. Even like uh, when you're building uh, to spec, let's say like if you're doing prefab work and you're making a whole bunch of different parts and equipment and everything and you're putting the strut on it and you say, okay, this should fit in this spot based upon how the building is constructed. But then let's say your concrete guys could have been having a bad day that day and the doorway or let's say the wall that was supposed to be uh, 17 feet is now 17 feet, six inches. And it throws off the rest of the building. Right. Well, now you're going to have, let's say you may just have a wall switch that's, you know, where the cover is going to be sliced off by, by the door trim because of that. It happens, you know. And you have to just call audibles on that stuff. Like It is so hard to follow all the plans all the codes and then make the, all the stuff that's on paper become reality right because if you could do that all you'd have to do is train a bunch of monkeys to go in and do it exactly the way it is but because you, you have human beings there because you need somebody to be able to think and yes be able to problem solve um it's like even even like with uh, with the um safety aspects of things there's like certain safety rules that you're not supposed to break. For instance, like standing on the rails of a scissor lift. Sometimes you have to only because that is the safest way to be unsafe. Yeah. And an OSHA inspector will let it slide simply because you're not using it as a standard practice. It's the only reason why I had to take my hard head off. The only reason why I had to stand on these rails. The only reason why uh, um, I only have one leg on the ladder is because any other way would have either been impractical or less safe. Yeah, I found in, in residential, in residential strictly, I have found that a lot of code that they put in, it, it's just common sense stuff. Like, if, if I found if you have to ask yourself the question, is this up to code? It probably isn't. Yeah, but I've seen the converse of that also where... You know, if you, especially if you don't know the code, you could ask yourself that same question and um, actually be okay. For instance, like someone who doesn't know the code will simply say every 20 amp circuit needs um, needs number 12 wire, every 15 amp circuit needs number um, number 14 wire, and so on. But when you start getting into the code, you'll see instances where you can have uh, number 12 wire on a 40 amp breaker. And like you know, that's talking about motor loads. And yes, absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and that's and typically when you start dealing with motor loads, you're 
you're getting into the more high level stuff, so you're having to reference that code book. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think sometimes your work dictates how much you have your nose in that code book. Oh yeah, a- a- absolutely. Because it's like um, a couple weeks ago, I started working on something. You know, working on these AC units that I've never worked on a day in my life. So of course, everything that's relating to that, I'm not going to know off the top of my head, and I might even get some things wrong. Right. Because you're really only going to know the stuff that you work with on a daily basis. I mean, um, you know, you could memorize some things. You could memorize the whole book. Some people do. You know, some people could pretty much say, hey, I know exactly what's on 503.1. The rest of us don't. So until you're working in special applications or special occupancies um, or hazardous locations, you're not really going to be in 500. Yep. And I think one of the one of one of my weakest points is is the is the code book as an electrician mm-hmm. because I've opened it up a handful of times and it's taken me ten fifteen minutes to find the answer that I was looking for, and I've got oh. my test coming up, so it's something that I need to really focus on is getting faster at navigating where the articles are. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, if for no other reason, for test taking purposes, definitely uh, uh, get familiar with the, with, with the book. Because one thing I've learned with the testing is that um, you could have a question that could rel- that could relate to three different sections of the book, and you have to find out which section of those three. Where um, I had a test, I'm sorry, I had a test, a test question which asked something about HVAC unit, but there was nothing in air conditioning, there was nothing in heating, there was nothing in motors, and um, there was nothing in overcurrent protection. And I ended up finding it in section 200 of the book. I forgot exactly what the question was, but it was like the dumbest thing. And I was all over the book trying to find this, and I missed one of the key words in that question. It had to be going everywhere else except for where I needed to go. Right. And so does the table of contents, does that give you a good roadmap to like where to find information? Or is that kind of just laid out however they want it laid out? I mean, the table of contents is excellent if you know what's in it. Um, so if you've actually been in those sections, the table of contents is very helpful. Um, and I'm always jumping back and forth between the table of contents and the index because even though the table of contents is more of like a general type of thing, uh, index is more specific. I think that, um, I would, I would dare say that neither one is, neither one of them are useful until you got yourself familiar with every single chapter in the book. Huh? That's, that seems a little bit. Bad, right, count- in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, because like, okay, so I'm going to scroll back over to my table of contents. And um, so if I'm looking at the table of contents, um, let me see, it just takes me a minute here. Just flipping these pages back. And um, so for instance, um, Like chapter one is a general, and they talk about definitions, um, over a thousand volts, hazardous locations, requirements for electrical installations, so on and so forth. Um, then chapter two, wiring and protection. Chapter three, wiring methods and materials. And so, like m- wiring methods and materials, that's like a very, very broad topic. Um, 
And so when I'm looking at this, it's like, okay, so they tell you in the table of contents, like, you know, cabinets and cutout boxes and construction specifications and enclosures and that kind of thing. So the table of contents is very specific as far as like what it's going to talk about in those areas. Um, but I think that you still have to have some familiarity with that so you know that, like, so that similar topics don't cross-reference each other. Right. I remember I was having to go find a code reference to where where you the closest you can put a a plug into a bathtub. Mhm. Yes. And that took I think that took me an hour to find mm -hmm. out where that was cuz it wasn't in the bathroom section of of the 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 code book. It was in some other section that I just completely didn't even think of. Exactly. That, that one code reference. I think it was like within 6 feet or Six feet horizontally from the plane of the tub, and the wording was just super weird and strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exa exactly. So, um, unfortunately, I, re I really do think that the table of contents makes more sense when you're more familiar with the book uh, versus the other way around. Um, because, like, right, so good. I got a stage. I got a question from stage chat from Captain Thresher. Okay. He asked, "So, how long did it take everyone to learn the code book?" Any tips? Okay. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that you ever really learn the whole code book. Um, the thing about education, thing, thing about learning, let me uh, get some water here. Learning is not necessarily knowing or memorizing everything, but more or less knowing where to find the information. And I think that um, the better that you are at navigating the book, um, I, I would say that that if I had to choose between two guys as in terms of knowledge or who would be the most knowledgeable, I think that I would have more uh, confidence in the guy who could navigate the book than the guy who memorized it from cover to cover. So I, I don't think you ever really, quote unquote, learn it, but you do learn how to navigate it and you learn how to extract the information. You've you've been around the, the block a couple times. Mm hmm. And I have a question about when the code cycle updates, do they completely reorganize everything or is it kind of similar and it just kind of morphs over time? So there's a lot of ways to do it, but I think the most common way is that they start with um, suggestions that people write in with. And I forgot exactly the exact term that they call that, but um, generally, like, if you notice something in the code that should be there or shouldn't be there, um, you can actually write the uh, code panel and say, hey, I, I have a suggestion for the code to either remove this or to add this or to make this more clear. And that's kind of where they start. And... Um, so it's like they're working on the code all the time. So it's like, you know, right now they're working on what, 2023, even though it's just 2022 right now. And um, soon they're going to be working on 2026. And I even think they do have things in, in the works for 2026 right now that they're discussing and arguing over and that sort of thing. Uh, so um, I, I think my question kind of missed. What okay. I mean is, but so going from 2022 to or uh -huh. 2020. 2019 code to the 2020 2017 to 2020 mm -hmm. was there any like big shifts in where things were located like in the table of contents 
Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, that happens from time to time. Um, I don't know if anything shifted from 2017 to 2020. That was uh, just arbitrary, just because that was a, that was a news yeah. code cycle. But just in general. But in, in general, yeah, I think things are moving all the time. And things are being deleted all the time. Some of the tables in Chapter 9 have been removed. Um, some of the tables have moved from one section in an article to a different section in, in a particular article. Um, so that's the only problem I would see if, let's say, that you got an earlier version code book for learning purposes. I mean, it's good to use to get familiar with the code. But they, but if you use it as like your primary learning tool, where it's like if you try to memorize, like I say, a 2011 book, um, you know a particular table or particular section to be in this particular part of the code and eventually gets moved to a different part. Um, so that's why you, you just really want to use it to learn how to navigate the, the code book. So that way, if you go to 2020 and you see the information is not there anymore, at least you know how to reference it back at the table of contents or even um, the um, index. So and on the topic of outdated codes right yep mm -hmm. let's talk about local jurisdictions uh -huh. and the differences between like some some are running on 2014 some are on 2020 some just yes. said, screw this book and they made their own right yeah right right so what do you suggest to people coming in do we say 2022 do we try to get the local the local code or what's the what's the best move for someone in, just coming in yeah i would definitely get the book that's consistent with um, your current code cycle for your particular jurisdiction. I mean, it would be great if you can get 2014, 17, and 20. But um, um, it also depends on like what your job duties are, where let's say if you're working in one jurisdiction that's on 2014, um, but you just happen to be, let's say like for, for instance, like for yourself, where you're really not in the code book every day, um, you may want to have a 2014 book for the areas where you may be working. But let's say that if they go to 2020 somewhere else that you worked at, um, you don't you may not need a 2020 book until 2020 becomes available in that area. Or if you're in a situation where you're in charge of, of um, making sure that things are up to code, or you're in charge of meeting the inspector. Uh, so it is, it is, it's really a tough call, but I think just any book that you get, um, because like one of the things about 2020, I'd like to think that if you had a 2020 book that should cover everything beforehand, or at least if you said, um, at least if I do everything up to 2020 standards and that should cover me for 2014 and 2017. Um, but I do believe, and I have to find this in, in the code book, but I believe there are some things that, um, that um, were not um, a requirement in um, 2017, but a requirement now, and vice versa. Yes, surge protectors and more arc faults. So yes, exactly. I've always told people that it's better to use 2020 as a baseline because it's generally more. It's a safer system all around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you also have to kind of just understand what codes you're your county that you your counties that you work in are on mm -hmm. but I, th I think i'm like go ahead i was because like you know austin does is is next to me mm -hmm. and they do things different than out here in the country mm -hmm. so you have to be able to flow between those two things sometimes in the same day right, right. you have to realize oh hey i'm in austin oh hey i'm over here in this town 
there is no inspections in this town. So, you know, what do I do in that situation? You got to just be fluid about what codes you're using. I think 2020 is a good baseline. Right. But I think about like, what if you're running 14-4 wire for your three-way switches? And then there's something in 2017 that says you've overfilled the box now. Whereas like, like 2014, I'm sorry, 2020 would make that exception. Because it'd be, you know, for some reason they say, you know, the extra neutral doesn't count or something like that. I'm not only making this up. That's not what the code says. Right. Well, I was going to say, like, to counter your argument, box fill is on the, is b- on the box. Yep. So mm-hmm. you would just run the calculation for that. Right. But a lot of box fill calculations, you ignore, you know, you ignore uh, the grounds except for one. Yeah. And so I'm just thinking of a situation where, let's say that, like, you have that, um, 14-4 wire, which is not necessarily being used right now, so you may or may not count that as a conductor at the time of installation. Right. And I'm just saying it's a hypothetical. I mean, I, th- I think you normally would, and that's something I just have to verify in the 2020. But I'm just thinking... You know, go ahead. You bring up a funny anecdote. So Dustin did a video a couple months or a month or so ago about pancake boxes, mm-hmm. how in every single situation they technically violate code. Mm-hmm. Because even if with a, even with a fourteen two wire, it's still uh, right. <laughs> is, is it is still too much wire in the pancake box? Yet they are still a super common box that no one ever is going to fail an inspection for. Right. Well, because whatever you're going to attach to the pancake will add to that box. Will add to that uh, box space. Sometimes, not not all the time. Okay, so. I have installed okay. light fixtures that are complete flush mount to a pancake box, and it is right. not pretty for anybody. Yeah, I, I would say that's a violation. If I was an inspector, I, I would have to make you uh, put a full size box in. Okay, so what do you, what do you, what, what will you do in the situation where you can't, like where that's just not possible? Um. Okay, so if the AHJ says you have to have more box space, the only thing you can do is cut the drywall up and, and put a bigger box in. If you're uh-huh. in the exterior of a building and you have to break and you have to cut the sheathing in the house, cut a two by cut a structural two by four to but put nine, a bigger nine, box. But nine times out of ten, a um, a flush mount fixture is not going. Well, I'm saying you're not, not going to have uh, an exterior flush mount fixture, and if you do, that flush mount fixture has its own enclosure. I can I know four lights that I installed that did not have that. Okay, I got you. Um, because I, I've, I've like you know installed lights in the in, in, in a concrete patio. I've installed lights um, inside the deck of a of a um, hotel building. And in all circumstances, there was nothing that was flush mount that didn't have its own can or have its own uh, um, junction box. Let me see if I can pull pictures of these up, man. Okay. Like, I, I I swear to you, there was nothing in these boxes. All right. Exactly. Oh, I didn't take... Why did I take pictures of these? Damn past, Matt. Okay, so let's... I'm going to back up here and read some of these um, these comments here. Let's see if we have any questions also. So Peter says, I love listening to BDL speak. It's almost like the Bob Ross level. Yeah, that's, that's funny. Yep, I don't have pictures. That That's unfortunate. Okay. Okay. All right. I got you. <laughs> okay, so as we go on through these happy little trees, um, let's see... Let's see, just going through. So let's see, Warnock says outlets. 
does that mean that we does that mean receptacles or just openings say i think cancer? outlets are just any anything where wires come out of a box right that that is correct yes that 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 is indeed correct because that's why you have both designations both outlets and receptacles right yeah because i was doing i was i was talking to a general contractor today about how one of the houses he spec'd out had like 455 plus outlets in his house and he looked at me like i had just like started spewing words out over the place I'm like no 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 outlets are plugs light switches lights fans the whole so that's another the the verbiage is just bad in the code book well yeah and and, and that's why you have article 100 for the definitions uh, because a lot of times we use things pejoratively in the real world as far as like how we define <laughs> things or how we mention things yep not one person in the field is going to call an ungrounded conduct going to call a hot the ungrounded conductor exactly exactly or even like you know what do we say a lot of times let's say if you have a string of uh, of 10 receptacles five of them are not working most people call that a short but that's not a yep. short because if you had a short it would trip the breaker yep it's a it's a fault condition that's isn't that a technical yes or something like that yes yeah it's something <laughs> Yeah, I, I know what, what's going on. Yeah, let's see what else we have in the chat oh. here. It says, Rotag will wake up in cold sweats thinking about arc faults. That's interesting. I do, man. Well, arc <laughs> faults are the worst. Mm -hmm. The three-way debate on a, if a receptacle is a receptacle, outlet, or a plug. Yeah, okay, so that's, that's another thing. So plugs are what goes into holes. Even though we say plug when we really mean receptacle or outlet. Well, then there's the the inlets that you plug into, uh, like you know you put your art, you put your generator into an inlet box and it backfeeds your panel. People still call right. that a plug. Well, let's see. Okay, so what they taught us in IT school many years ago was that whether or not a connector is male or female is based upon the pins, not the actual connector. So the fact that you take, let's say, you take a female end of an extension cord and stick it in to the uh, um to the uh transfer switch you know technically you are plugging into something even though the male end is actually on, on the house okay and i i can go so many places with that you know with so many you know real world examples that i, I care not to right now yeah yeah we'll keep it we'll keep it clean for the, <laughs> yeah i was just thinking like, yeah I, can, I have some things i want to say but yeah. i'm just gonna uh -huh. yeah. Yes, and we thank you for tuning in to and listening to this evening's podcast. And um, we invite you to always participate on all of our forums and all of our platforms. We're everywhere that social media is. So wherever you are, we are. Um, everything we were speaking about on this uh, podcast this evening was on our Discord server. And it is the U Crew uh, from Electrician U. And go to electricianu.com for more information.